0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 21 on the nature of Middle-earth as we continue. Uh, well, we kind of started. We did get like one slide into part three last time. So I guess that counts. That counts. That's good enough. Um, but uh, anyway, so we're going to we're going to uh, dig a little deeper into part three today. Um uh, thanks for joining me. Quick announcements: We have two of our regional moots coming up very soon. TexMoot is coming up in a mere week and a half. Looking forward to getting down to Austin, Texas, to see folks. There's still time to sign up, both in person and in uh, uh, and for digital attendance as well. And don't forget that if you sign up for digital attendance, if you you know you you get a digital uh, uh, ticket. Uh, for the moot. You also get access to a full recording of the moot. So if you can't actually be there the whole day, you can get a recording. Um, Recordings are only available to people who have uh, who have tickets. It's just an event thing. We don't, you know, publicize the uh, events. Um, But uh, you know, uh, yeah, so we, we're not, we're not going to like put the whole event up on YouTube, but we do make those available to folks who get digital tickets. So recall that. And then the week after that, next, uh, the week after, so we got next week is TexMoot, Moot. The week after that is Sunshine Moot down near Orlando, Florida. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to both of those a whole lot. So uh, Austin, Texas, Orlando, Florida, two weekends in a row. It's going to be really great. We're still working on, um, uh, uh, getting together, uh, hoping for one more regional moot before the end of this year's moot season. Um, hoping to get Buckeye moot in Ohio together. Um, uh, but still looking for some help, uh, their finalizing details there. So hopefully we'll, uh, get that together. But otherwise, um, we certainly have these two coming up that I'm very much looking forward to. So, um, I'll see. I know I'll see some of you soon, uh, some of you who are here in attendance, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, All right. So, um, the other thing that I wanted to say apart from our regional moots, oh, and by the way, if you've ever thought about maybe like what was involved in being part of the team to host one of our regional moots, uh, we just did... Karita uh, Alexander, our regional moot coordinator, and I did a session earlier this week on Tuesday, um, which is up on YouTube. So if you look at our recent videos on YouTube, you'll, you'll see our info session on hosting regional moots. Just kind of talking about that process. A lot of people... I think, have um, some false impressions about what's involved uh, in hosting a moot. And uh, it's, uh, it's a process that's really uh, quite simple and fun. We can't do our regional moots without the help of local contacts, uh, you know, boots on the ground to help us uh, kind of get some stuff together. Um, but the amount of time and uh, uh, and certainly the amount of uh, sort of responsibility that's asked of our local contacts is very low, very manageable. Um, uh, We really take care of a lot of those details. So if you're interested in kind of hearing more about that and understanding more about how that process goes and what it might take or not take uh, to help get uh, a regional moot set up in your area, let us know. Uh, get in touch with us, and uh, we will uh, be happy to help you with that. Of course, you can watch the video, and then if you're interested in volunteering, uh, you can volunteer to info at dot org, and we will uh, connect you there. Um, no, Stephen, we haven't finalized the whereabouts. That's exactly our problem with uh, Ohio Moot. We have a we have a really good lead on a uh, on a venue um, in uh, in Ohio, but we're like, near Cincinnati, but we're not. It's not like confirmed yet. So if we can get, get confirm that one, that'll be cool. Um, otherwise, we're also looking at one near Akron. We're trying to figure out that the the like day and place is the primary thing that we're um, uh, trying to figure out, trying to settle. So once we get that, um, once we get that set up. Then we're gonna. Uh, then we'll be able to be uh, more more confident moving forward with with uh, with Buckeye Moot. Jocelyn, I'm afraid um, that uh, Los Angeles is uh, that is not going to be able to happen this spring. We were really hoping uh, for SoCal Moot this year. That kind of fell apart a little bit. We've not been pushing very hard. It's one of the things with regional moots this year. It's been a challenge uh, because it's been it's been hard for a lot of venues. I mean, as the you know, the pandemic is still kind of working through. A lot of venues have been uneasy. A lot of people have been uneasy. And we're not pushing things. Like, we're, you know, our our whole policy this year, we decided we're going to go ahead and begin regional moots again. Um, But, you know, only, like, where and with whom, you know, people who are comfortable with that. Um, So, it's been been more challenging in that way than it has been before. So, um, anyway, I am uh, uh, really hopeful... That we'll be able to do uh, Southern California again uh, next year, so we'll we'll see we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, anyway, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention: we have some new designs in the Signum store. So if you go to Redbubble, we have a Redbubble source. go to, go to Redbubble and search for Signum Store and you will find our signum store you can shop our products or you can look at our uh you can explore our designs we have several new designs we're always getting suggestions of designs from folks and uh you know often we'll get a suggestion and be like oh man yeah we totally uh uh we totally want to make a design for that so uh um we we have uh, uh uh put up several new designs so you can just go ahead to our store check this out um and uh some uh some some fun stuff here in the uh, Signum University store. And again, you can get all these designs on, like, scads of things, basically. All kinds of uh, products all over the place. Stickers and shirts and bags and hats and blankets and all kinds of things. So um, I love... Uh, I'm a huge fan of our uh, baby clothes. This is... Um, I only regret that I... Uh, I didn't have actually have this for my kids. I always used to call uh, my infant children the chiefest and greatest of calamities, usually during the diaper-changing process. Uh, so I would have loved to have a chiefest and greatest of calamities, uh, like onesie pattern or something. That would have been awesome. But um, anyway, anyway. Um, yes, and I've been sporting my Balrogs Don't Have Wings mask. That's my, uh, it's my go-to mask uh, for uh, you know places... Indoors where I'm still required to mask, so anyway, um uh yeah, Tarlonial says just to have more kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well um no. <laughs> no. That's not happening. That's not happening. Um uh as um as my wife pointed out a long time ago, uh if you take our two sons and you put their initials side by side, they spell no mo. So there you are. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was my wife's answer to the question. Are you, gonna, are you guys going to have more kids? Uh, but anyway, okay. Alright. Let us get back into part three of the nature, the nature of Middle-earth here. Um, so, mytho-astronomy. Let's do this. Now, you'll remember That uh, sort of my my own checkered history, not in the discipline of mytho-astronomy, of course, um, but of uh, sort of dealing with Tolkien's dealing with this particular issue, right? I mean, we talked about this a lot when we were discussing Morgoth's Ring, and we were first sort of encountering and and, and working through Tolkien's um, confrontation of this sort of conflict between myth and science right um he wanted he had written his mythology right the the myth, mythology of the world which was originally flat and then made round at the time of the fall of númenor and you'll recall that the big problem that he was having with this when he returns to the silmarillion after the lord of the rings he wants it to be he wants it to have a different kind of internal consistency like the the main thing that's going on there and we've talked about this many times before is that He's changing the genre, fundamentally changing the genre, right? He wants the Silmarillion to work in the same way that a detailed, realistic romance like The Lord of the Rings works. Um, And if it seems strange to describe a fantasy work like The Lord of the Rings as a realistic romance, um, Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be strange, uh, because that's exactly the kind of thing that he's he's doing there. It's the idea of positing... Some different things about reality, right, like that there are elves, you know, for instance, right um, but then uh, but then you have this internal consistency, but this was exactly the crux of the problem, right and the, or at least the crux of my objections earlier on, right is what I recall saying in um, our discussion of Morgoth's ring was that what I would say to Tolkien is. It's, it's okay to be a sub-creator. Like, you've argued this, right? So it's okay to postulate things that are not like our world. Like, it's, it's okay for your fictional world, your fantasy world, to be different from our world. You can be a lover of nature and not its slave, Tolkien, I would have said, right? Um, just because our solar system seems to have had around Earth, more or less, from the start, uh, uh, doesn't mean... That his story has to include that that um, he can build an internally consistent fantasy world that operates on a different premise than ours why does he have to make it and I was ar- I-, I was arguing at the time you know that he could just what seemed to be um, what seemed to be uh, uh, kind of operating on him there was a tie a, a more rigid I don't want to say rigid, strict tie between his world and our real world. Um and I was ready to let it go. The real world, I mean, right? So let it go. Right? Let it go. It's a fantasy world. Just it's it's not our world. It's okay. Let's let that go. And then we'd be fine. Right? But then we can do flat world to round world and and we can have the trees, and we can make the moon out of the last flower of Telperion, and, and, and we, can, we, can, we, can, we can still do all that, right? Um, but only if it's not our world anymore, because that was his problem. If it's our world, then it's always been round, and the elves would know that. That's, in, in a nutshell, his issue with that, right? Um, but of course, actually, giving this synopsis again made me, just made me realize something just now. And that is, I'm not sure that Tolkien would agree with me, that the Lord of the Rings is based in a fantasy world exactly. Um, I mean, in in one sense that seems obviously true, but in another sense I'm not quite sure. Like, take elves, for instance. I just elves is what I was pointing to. Like, it's just like our world except with elves, right? Um, and in in, in the one sense that does seem to be one of the fundamental um of... Right to use I think c s Lewis's word, but um you know underlying the uh you know the fantasy of tolkien's mythology from the beginning, right, what if there's not one incarnate race right there's not only one incarnate rational race made in the image of God, but two right, and the one and they have the you know let's turn um and in, in a sense, remember, we, I was comparing it at the time. Uh, we talked about this, again, in Morgoth's Ring, um, because we had recently read um, Out of the Silent Planet. C.S. Lewis is Out of the Silent Planet. And one of the things, of course, that he's doing um, in, the, uh, in Out of the Silent Planet is imagining a world with multiple rational races, right? Uh, multiple rational species, I should say. Um, and... Um, you know, and imagining what that world would look like, right? So you get the, you know, the Hrasa and the Sorns and the uh in Melacandre there in Lewis's book. Um, and in a sense, of course, that's just what Tolkien has done too. Not exactly the same, right? But he's, he's again, he's taken you instead of having just, you know, humans made in the image of God ruling over the beasts, uh, what if there were two independent, parallel, different incarnate races? Right? Rational species. Um, so in one sense, that's, as I say, the sort of the fundamental supposal. But the the thing that just occurred to me when I was giving the synopsis just now is the, the grounds, I think, on which Tolkien perhaps might quibble with that construction, uh, my characterizing it as, uh, you know, the sort of fantasy supposal, you know, underlying the thing, is that he might say, well, but I'm not making it up. I didn't invent elves, right? He invented a lot about elves. He invented the stories about elves. He invented the languages for elves, but he didn't invent elves, right? In the end, of course, his mythology grew out of a desire to explain what was, right? Given that there are these stories, right? There are these legends in England, right, of, um, of elves and things that elves do, and there are particular locations that are associated with elves, and there are these like elf-haunted places in more than one sense, potentially haunted by elves, haunted by elves, or at least by the memory of elves. Um, Tolkien was always very sensitive to these kinds of stories and to this kind of thing, right? And so in one way, one way to kind of characterize what he was doing in the Book of Lost Tales, like what the function of the Book of Lost Tales is, is to explain that stuff. Why why should that be? Why is it that England has these stories, these local stories, these uh, traditional stories? Um, Why is it that England is uh, a very elf-focused place? Um, Why do they talk about fairies all the time? Um, And um, so are his answers to that like is he claiming from the beginning to just be doing like anthropology? What would be the what would be the equivalent term, parallel term? And it's not anthro, of course. It would be like an Eldaropology, or, or, or I don't know what it would be. Um, but uh, anyway, um, it's the study of. He's not claiming to do to be doing, you know, a, a true history, except actually, wait, yeah, that's exactly what he claimed, right? He claimed that the Book of Lost Tales is the real story, right? The real explanation behind all of those things. Now, that's fiction, right? Yeah. Fiction, but it's tied to the real world from day one, right? Um, It's all tied um, to the real world in this way. Um, uh, Anyway, so... um, uh the point is, the tie to the real world is very, very deep for tolkien right um, and yet there was clearly and we saw him working through this, Christopher showed us him working through this in in many places in Morgoth's ring for him a perceived conflict between the mythology, and the world building. We were looking at this for a while earlier in this book, right? When he was doing all of those Elvish growth rate calculations, right? We see him um, trying to reconcile these three things, right? Reconcile um, what we said at the time, right? The world building, the stories, the received stories, and the math, right? Or again, the... Real world, right? To make it fit, to make it work um, in real terms. Not just hand waving, not just, uh, you know, not just randomly making stuff up, but to be a system which matches, in a sense, the real world, right? So here we see him approaching. I was particularly, therefore, interested in this section. This is uh, uh, parts one, uh, I think primarily part one, or chapter one, rather, of part three. Um, the whole mytho-astronomy thing. Because on the one hand, it's astronomy, right? It's just, how did the elves, if the world isn't flat and the world isn't shaped like a Viking longship, as it fancifully was in one of his early maps of the world, um, if it's not a Viking longship and it's not flat, then what is it like? What is the understanding, the elves' understanding? Um, and how can he continue, How can he do it's the same pattern, right? The world building, the stories, the received stories, and reality, right? Whether that be mathematical reality or whether that be scientific reality, how can he join these things together? So this is that's what we see him. Uh, that's what we see him doing here. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. So. Uh, Hang on a second, before I dive into the text here, uh, Chris Bartlett was saying, so the argument here would be that contrary to what I had understood from previous evidence, Tolkien never really abandoned his attention to connect these stories to our world or acknowledge a connection he saw throughout his life rather than abandoning that construction which I thought he'd done somewhere after the Lost Road period. Um, Yes, in a sense, Chris. um, I think, in my mind, all of this science and math stuff that we're seeing seems to me pretty clear evidence that he is not abandoning that connection. Were he willing to just let the whole connection to the real world go and say, yeah, this has nothing to do with the real world. This is just a fantasy world. Get over it. Right? He, you know, Tolkien says mostly to himself. um, If he had done that, (coughs) why, why, why do any of this? Right? His whole explanation, like what we see him working through in deciding i 've got to pitch like the reason that he felt it was incumbent upon him to ditch the flat world cosmos right um, is plainly premised on that connection if you've willing to ditch that there's no reason there's if he 'd been willing to ditch the connection uh, to the real world there's there's no reason even to to go there at all there's no reason to rethink at all and and that's the that 's the interesting issue right um if he 's not ditching it um he would have the the conflict between mythology and astronomy would have been a lot easier uh to reconcile um He wouldn't have had to choose because remember that that the myths he loved these mythic stories, like the story of the last flower of Telperion being made into the moon, right He loved these stories, but of course, even more importantly in a sense. There was the received tradition, and we've seen many points at which he is accepting, taking things like uh, the Tale of Years, right, Appendix B, as a fixed text, right, Um, that functionally can't be altered um, and needs instead to be explained. That's a factor, of course, we saw many times uh, in the earlier section. Um, And boy, think how much easier his life would have been, you know, for, for the last 20 years of his life if he had just let go of the primary world connection. Right? Cuz then it's easy to reconcile all these things uh scientifically. I mean, right? But it's not so but but Chris, here's what I would say though. Um uh what I would say is I don't think that I think it's I would I would say even more strongly. I think it's quite clear that Tolkien never really abandoned his intention to connect these stories to our world. I think that's explicit in all of this later revision of the mythology stuff Um, however what has changed is the mythology for England stuff right the function of all of these things as an explanation specifically for the legends and stories of England that desire to give England her mythology right Uh, which it did not have, that, you know, famously expressed in the letter to Milton Waldman, um, that seems to have very largely gone. We can see some memories of it in some places, um, but his view, I mean, what we're going to be talking about here, the solar system, right, his story... His myth, uh, this the final version of this story. You know the version that he never actually wrote. The version you know that is the the final, uh, you know, realistic romance of the Silmarillion, right? That he's working on here, Um, the Silmarillion that reads like the Lord of the Rings. Um, That is not a story of England. That's it's a global story. That's a story. It's it's, and it's funny because of course he characterizes his desire to make a mythology for England ridiculously overambitious as as ridiculously overambitious, right? In that letter to Milton Waldman, but of course what he's doing by the end is something far more grandiose than that, right? Um, And you can see the way in which once he had expanded the world, right? Um, You can see this in the way that he's thinking through the map later on, right, when he was doing his comparisons between, like, where um, you know, he he spends a lot of time focusing on the the northwest of of the old world, right? That is to say, you know, northern Europe, uh, Scandinavia, uh, you know, basically the whole Germanic zone that he was focused on from a scholarly perspective. Um, But notice what happens when the Lord of the Rings... The Lord of the Rings has taken him out of that. Like, literally, they traveled Out of that, he didn't even picture Gondor when he started, right? And He certainly didn't picture Rohan when he started, and he certainly didn't picture Harad when he started, right? Dol Amroth, all of those places were revealed to him as he went. So as the journey went on, as the story developed in The Lord of the Rings, and it covered a much bigger part, it's already, by the end of The Lord of the Rings, has ceased to just be a story about the Northwest uh, of the Old World anymore. It's where it started. That's where its roots still are, right? But it's no longer that story anymore. Um, And now, as he's expanding beyond that, right, as he's doing this whole uh, mytho-astronomical thing, right, this... this uh, it becomes instead a much clearer... um, it becomes a much clearer... much more clearly global, universal sort of story, right? Um, his story has grown and he's, he's okay letting it grow. Um, and it's one of the things that I think would be really interesting um, to have seen. Um, if, you know, Tolkien could have been given another 75 years right, in which to finish all of this stuff, um, we can see his interest in the, like, new horizons that had opened up in his story. Right. Um, uh, for instance, the Blue Wizards. Right. Um, the Blue. The Blue Wizards themselves are evidence of his increasing interest in those white spaces that lay beyond the edge of his maps. Right. His story took him as far as Gondor and Mordor, um, which is way down in the south and not in the Old World part. Right. Um, but um, a long, long ways from the Shire. And then we can see he's continuing to think and to push those frontiers. Who are those other two wizards? Well, wow. blue wizards, what did they do? Wow, I don't know, but they probably went out into the East, right? I wonder what was happening out there. And I think again, the final evidence that we get of the blue wizards, those new names that we see him give them, um, uh, suggests that, you know, there are like, uh, you know, stories in Embryo, right? contained there, of what was going on out, you know, in the far east of Middle-earth, um, I think that the stories would have continued to grow uh, in in several different directions, and clearly not just in the sense of being about England, you know, about the northern part of the old world, as he said at that one point. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, Let's actually discuss the passage here, having talked about this, uh, uh a lot. Um, uh... Okay. The Quendian imagination of the shape of Arda, and of the visible heaven, Menel, above it, was due to the acute minds of a people endowed with sight far keener than the human norm. It was partly astronomical and scientific, uh, notice, scientific is in quotation marks here. Um, the elves are not exactly scientific. That is to say, their attitude is not the same as modern scientists. So he, I think that's why he puts that in quotation marks there. Um, it's scientific in the sense that they are interested in observing and learning about the things in the world around them. Right? They have that in common with modern science. But there's a lot of things they don't have in common with modern science. And so he puts it in quotation marks. Anyway, it was partly astronomical and scientific, but crossed with a mythological or poetic talent. So, notice how I think he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too here, right? They made observations, and in as much as the elves make observations, the elves' observations must surely be correct, right? They can't just be wrong about how the solar system works and the stars and everything else, because they are at least as good observers as humans without telescopes, right? Because they're, um, you know, as he says, they're uh, um, uh, what is it? Their, Their sight is far keener than the human norm, right? So what humans can see in the night sky and draw conclusions from, uh, elves can see better and presumably draw conclusions at least as well as the humans. Plus, they had resources that humans didn't have, namely the Valar, who, you know, helped shape them, the stars, that is. So, yeah, they would have uh, double reasons to be more rather than less accurate than human astronomy. But the elves, who are doing all of this careful accurate observation also have a mythological and poetic talent. Um, mythological or poetic talent. Um, and he's using mythological here not in the sense of like but they believed lots of like random wrong stuff, right? Um, mythology is a genre of poetic expression in Tolkien's vocabulary. Um and that's why it's mythological or poetic; like it's those are like inter, functionally interchangeable terms, essentially. When he's trying to characterize uh, what the elves combine with their scientific observations, right? Um, okay, even before their first acquaintance with the Valar, so even before they like got to hear the answers from the back of the book, right? Even before their first acquaintance with the Valar, they had evidently constructed a, pict- a picture mithro-astronomical of the world, which was in some respects far nearer to our recent knowledge and theory than might be expected. As Tolkien suggests, he's going to be reconciling it with modern science, right? Um, we should be able to recognize modern science or again, you know, the science of the 1950s at the very least, or at least the science of the 1950s as Tolkien understood it. Um, uh, he's, he's I, there I think he's Suggesting very clearly that he is desirous of reconciling the Elvish view uh, with this, like they, they were, they were so good, they were so smart, they were so such good observers that they, they constructed a picture which was actually quite near uh, to our picture of the world then might be expected. This picture endured in their minds and colored their myths even after. The learned and most scientific among the High Elves who dwelt with the Valar had, or so it may perhaps be presumed, learnt far more the scientific truth, or what we now regard as the truth. Um, So even before, again, even before they got the answers from the Valar, um, or sorry, even after they got the uh, story from the Valar, so there's this picture. Right, they had developed this picture of the of the solar system, the world Arda, and how it works, based on their own observations and conclusions, and informed by their own mythopoetic talents. Right, um, it is a picture both both a scientific conclusion and also a deliberately poetic construction. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well because they're good scientists. Or because they're not just scientists, perhaps, would be another way to say it, right? Um, Science gives you one way of understanding the world. Poetry and mythology give you another way to understand the world. These two things are not in conflict but they provide different... I mean, they can be in conflict. They're not necessarily in conflict. They're just two different modes. Two different modes of processing what the world is like. Um, And the elves freely, deliberately, without qualms, deployed both of them in the establishment of their picture of the world and how it worked, which was both accurate to observations... And also true to how the world works in some mythological or poetic ways um, in uh, which um, a merely scientific model may not be. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen says, people often think too highly of science. Ultimately, it's just a methodology which can be applied properly or improperly. That's true. I would also say... um, And I think Tolkien would say and I know C.S. Lewis did say that um, humans are innately poetic as well and we do this all the time. Even when modern people think that they are describing the world purely scientifically they're also describing the world poetically and mythologically. Um, That's plain all the way through. Um, And um, Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of things you could not say about the world if you never went further than stating those things which had been plainly confirmed uh, through the scientific method. Um, We can't learn that way. We can't think that way. And the elves, of course, were wise enough to know that as well. So, all right, more about this. Their imagination was thus not properly a flat earth cosmology. That is, in this, this picture that they had. Not, not properly a flat earth cosmology, and it was geocentric only as regards the sun, moon, and certain stars. Companions of the sun, or wayward stars, equals our planets. The solar system, sun, moon, and wayward stars, was properly called Arda, the realm. But Arda was commonly used of the earth as the habitation of elves and men, to which the sun, etc. were tributary." Hang on, so, so are you are following the combination of science and mythology here? Um, On the one hand, they know full well that the Earth revolves around the Sun. They know this. They know this. Only they don't care. (laughs) Right? That is to say, um, their mythology tells them it's true that the Sun and the Earth, the Sun is very much larger than the Earth. Right? And as a gravitational body, it's the centerpiece, and the Earth is going around it. Of course, right? Of course, actually, technically, scientifically, that's not even true. Um, the heliocentric solar system is just as poetical uh, as the rest. What's happening? Well, what's happening is that you've got, like, the Sun and the Earth are a binary system. It's just that one is much more massive, so they're both in binary orbit around each other. But because of the massive imbalance in their math, the Sun Barely moves at all, and the Earth goes around in a huge orbit, right? That's how uh, that's how uh, gravity, you know, that's how massive bodies act upon each other, right? Um, so to say the Sun is sitting serenely in the center of the solar system while all the planets go around them is just as is, is it, that's a poetical idea. Um, that's not a technical scientific description of what happens uh, in the solar system. But again, like I said, we are in. Uh, in, in intrinsically poetic, also like the elves. And so this is what they did too. They say, okay, look, the earth is the center of Arda. Like, ideologically speaking. Right? Our, this The earth is the place where the elves and the men, the children of... Like, Iluvatar has placed his children upon this bit of rock. Um, the Valar have come to dwell in and oversee this bit of rock. Right? It is... Poetically, mythologically, the center of art. And so they they speak freely about it that way, not concerning themselves with the fact that they, they, they know that the earth isn't standing still and the sun revolving around it. But what is that to the purpose? That's what we see every day, right? We elves, right, are here on the earth. And what do we see every day? We see the sun rising and setting. And so we're going to celebrate that right? We're going to uh, we are interested in looking at the way that these things happen and we're here on the earth seeing it from this perspective so let's let's dig into that, why not? right? Um, That is in fact the uh, mythopoetic reality that we're living in Um, so let's not fight that Um, and again this is um, um, this is it, it was the poetic the mythopoetic revolution of the, you know, the, the, the difference between the geocentric and the heliocentric solar system is not fundamentally a scientific difference. Um, the observations upon which the geocentric construction of the universe were ba- was based um, is are, are very accurate for, I mean for the instruments they had, which was uh, no instruments. Right. Um, but, uh, the observational astronomy of the Greeks and medievals was very good, uh, without telescopes, right. Based on what they had, um, they knew the relative movements of, uh, heavenly bodies pretty, pretty well. They calculated the angle of the ecliptic and everything else. They, 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 they knew how all this stuff worked. Right. Um, what is the difference? The fundamental difference, the big difference between the geocentric and the heliocentric uh, solar system is a poetic difference. It's, it's, it's about what it means, right? How we imagine ourselves fitting in to the world, right? And the, uh, the insistence upon that is an insistence upon one particular poetic approach rather than another. And by the way, public service announcement that change is was actually the opposite of the one that almost everybody attributes to it. Right? People very commonly say that um, the geocentric world means that the Earth is the center of everything and the most important thing everywhere, and that everything else is subservient to the Earth. And whereas the heliocentric um, uh, solar system means that the Earth is like way less important and humans don't matter. And and that's the that's the the, the difference in the shift. It's about uh, us being less focused on ourselves and thinking that we're the center of everything. And that's quite the opposite of the force of the poetic shift that was actually happening at the time. Um uh it was not they did it was not because they saw the earth as the most exalted place in the heavens, uh, that the you know, the, the medievals placed it at the center. Um it was at the bottom of the world. It was, it was, uh, the only flawed, it was the garbage heap of the cosmos. Um, and by elevating it to being in the heavens itself, just like the earth is just another one of those heavenly bodies, um, they were actually elevating the status of the earth and of humanity. Um, th- they meaning the heliocentric folks, um, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, anyway, I just little public service announcement. Uh, that's, that in the modern popular idea of what happened back then, uh, it, that concept has been utterly reversed, like exactly 180 degrees reversed uh, from the reality of that poetic shift. But again, the poetic shift is... Um, uh, is the th- yeah, it's all in Dante, Stephen. Absolutely, it's all in Dante. Um, uh, what's at the center of the world? Satan's genitals, right? According to Dante, that's the exalted... <laughs> geocentric universe. Anyway. Um, okay, so uh, why am I talking about all this? I'm talking about all this to try to illustrate what I think Tolkien is getting at when he's talking about the scientific versus the poetic, but notice he, how he is, he is stating that like these two things are living together comfortably within the elves in ways which I think is alien to the modern way of thinking, where we think of those two things as opposed to each other a poetic understanding, and a scientific understanding. And they're not, um, they're not, the elves are not, like, anal about the heliocentric thing. Like, they know that the sun doesn't go around the Earth, but they don't care. Um, because that's not the poetic force of the experience of Earth living creatures, right? So, poetically, they still talk, they talk about, you will see them in their stories. They will talk as if, The world goes around the sun. Notice what, see what Tolkien's doing here? Explaining the established facts, the data points that he has. Um, Clearly, the sun is going around, excuse me, is going around the world Um, in the stories, in the Silmarillion stories, right? So he's explaining why it is they talk that way, despite the fact that they had a more accurate scientific understanding than might seem to be suggested by that. Um by the way wayward stars is a that's a phrase that's a just a that's a common medieval phrase wayward in the sense of uh they're not fixed in relationship with each other they move you know their position relative to other stars and to each other changes over time so they're they're wayward they they move around unlike you know say the stars in you know the constellation uh, you mean know, like the Big Dipper, right? Those don't move in relationship to each other. Those are fixed stars. The planets are wayward stars. Um, uh, okay, uh-huh. that's okay. Right, the solar system, sun, moon, and wayward stars was properly called Arda, the realm. But Arda was commonly used of the Earth as the habitation of elves and men to which the sun, etc., were tributary. As we discussed, the Earth or Middle Land, uh, Quenya Endor was recently conceived as was apparently conceived as spheroid major axis three minor two i believe that to be the ratio of the lengths of these axes of these axes so they didn't conceive the world as round they conceived it as spheroid but it was oblong it was it was squashed with a major axis lying east-west. So uh, it's, um, it's three to two, right? It's one and a half times as fat as it is tall, right? So it's a, it's a sphere squished. Like if you put your hands on the north and south poles of the globe and squish it some, you get the elvish spheroid oblong earth, right? I get not oblong exactly. It's symmetrical. It's just squished. Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, there was no childish pictorial myth of its supports. Pfft, man, who would like draw a map that looked like a you know a Viking longship that showed like pillars holding up the world in the great sea, right? Uh, you know, via the great sea, nobody, obviously. Um, uh, there was no childish pictorial myth of its support. So notice he's taken some of the elements of his old mythology. He's just flat rejecting, right? No childish pictorial myth of its supports. It was set there by the maker or his agents, and there remained by their will. It was not possible for terrestrial animals nor elves and men without wings to reach the west and east poles or the uttermost north or south, because it was cut by a deep circular channel." Okay. So You notice what the earth doesn't do in this picture? Rotate. That is, it has both a north and south pole and an east and west pole. Um, which now I'm thinking about, like, my children in their young days, because we were talking about my children earlier. I was talking about my children earlier. Um, uh, Who always were fascinated by the idea of the East and West Pole from Winnie the Pooh. Um, And um, there we go. Um, The picture, this uh, elvish picture of the world does not involve Rotation. It involves not a flat world, but a static world, which has both a north and south and an east and west pole. But you can't get to the poles because it was cut by a circular channel. Um, And then we get a picture. Um, yeah, Kerry. It also makes me want to go on an expedition as well. Um, um, to this day, my kids refer to that story whenever we like. We'll go somewhere and we'll be on an expedition, and uh, w- w- pretty much any time we're packing provisions, uh, uh, we, we, they make jokes about we're going on an expedition uh, to the West Pole, uh, or was it the East Pole? And it was one of them, or both at one at different points. But um, uh, anyway, okay. So here's the model. The picture now this is just a sketch that tolkien drew in the margin this is not one of his like fancy drawings right um and it's interesting he starts off with a with a circle right so we see the axis we see the intersecting axes the north south and east west axes of the world um there's a little circle at the center And then there are two concentric circles, which look to me exactly like they were done by him putting, like, a cup down, like a, you know, a mug and then a slightly bigger mug uh, down and tracing around the edges. I mean, it looks like you can even see uh, drawing artifacts that suggest that. Like, this little bit right here, that kind of looks like this is not a freehand circle. Um... Neither of these are freehand circles. So he's got the two concentrics, and they're perfect circles, apart from the, like where he messed it up once there, and where the pencil left the paper at one point. So there's a blank spot. Um, but okay, all right. So uh, he starts with that, and then he adds bits, right? He, uh, he, he draws freehand, right? You can see him drawing freehand with his pen around the edges, and he f- starts plumping out the East and West Poles, right? So you've got those concentric circles and then around them, he's, I I think he's using those as a base. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, uh, yeah. I'll come back to the circles. He uses those as a base, draws freehand with his pen around and fattens them out as if there's like, um, uh mountains on either end, right? On the east and west pole ends. And he has a couple different layers out there. So he draws around the edge of the outer circle and then fattens up on the east and west pole directions. And then he draws a larger shape which looks like which looks like an eye, right? Like a it's a you know with that comes to points on either side. Um uh, contacting the North and South Pole almost, right? But stretching out the East and West Poles further and bring them to points. Um, and um, okay, so what's going on here? And then, of course, most tantalizingly, he's put two things inside the map. He's well, He's got the circle at the center, And then he's got a dot with a letter K above it in the upper right-hand quadrant of the circle, the inner circle, innermost circle. And then he has a little blob, a biggish blob actually, uh, near the North Pole inside the circle there. And I also believe, or suspect at least... um, uh, Carl Hussetter was mentioning in his notes the idea, and this seems to me very plausible as an idea um that uh um the k is quivienin it's supposed to mark where quivienin was where the elves started, and the blob at the top up near the north pole just in the inside of the um of the circle um is Angband. Or Utumno, at least. Anyway, Morgoth's place, up in the north. Right? Probably Utumno, originally. I don't know. Um, But, um... Okay. All right. Uh, When I first was looking at this, I thought that the concentric circles, perfect circles, the two concentric perfect circles were supposed to be were just guides at first. In fact, I was even wondering if maybe the inner circle was like a mistake, right? Like he he got you know, a glass out of the kitchen and drew a circle around it and then was like yeah, it's too small I, I I want it a little bigger than that and so he got a second one and drew it around that and was like, okay, yeah, that's the size of what I want because it's the outer edge of that that he keeps on using right Um. But the more I was looking at it, the less I think that's true. Exactly, Stephen. That's, I think, what we are looking at. If we go back to the passage I was just reading, it was not possible for terrestrial animals nor elves and men without wings to reach the West and East Poles or the uttermost North or South because it was cut by a deep circular channel. I think that's what that is. I think that's the circular channel. So the inner circle, right? We've got the two concentric circles. The ga- the space between the two concentric circles, that's the rift. That's the rift. The inner circle, that's the world. That's the habitable world. Now, by the way, this is also a very medieval-esque concept. The idea that... um There are like the torrid zones and stuff. If you've heard that phrase before, that is, they they believed they knew the world was round throughout the Middle Ages. Another, of course, famous lie of the modern period that people in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat. They did not. They knew it was round, um, but they did think it was not possible to circumnavigate the globe. They thought it was impossible. Let me say that differently. They thought it was impossible to circumnavigate the globe because they believed that there were not rifts. They didn't believe there were chasms that kept you from doing this. They thought there were just, like, these, like, really hot zones that you couldn't get through. Why did they think that? Um, I think mostly because of the Sahara, frankly. Um, that Sahara was the southern bound. Like, there's... You can't get through the Sahara, and there's, like... You know, there's probably no life past the Sahara. So, um... I, that's, uh, my, anyway, my understanding of where the concept comes from. But um, it's like it's ultimately like Roman uh, in origin, uh, the, the concept. But anyway, um, they thought you couldn't sail around it. Um, but they did think there was stuff over there. Like, if you could get over there, there'd be, there'd be stuff. Um, but you can't. And that was the thing that the explorers of the 17th century were disproving, was that, in fact, it is all, the whole sphere is habitable turns out. I mean, except for, like, the ocean parts. But it's all navigable or habitable, mostly. Um, uh, South Pole's a little inhospitable, but nevertheless. Um, Anyway, that concept, though, of there's, um, the world isn't flat, but there's a bound. Right. Um, that the world is kind of contained. It's penned in. Right. The world the the world that we live in, the kind of theatre of action of history, is 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 penned in, right? That's a medieval concept. Uh and he seems to be um um yeah, yeah. Um that would they they um as I say, that's a medieval idea. And so, what as we look here at this picture, and we see him in pen drawing the fatter bits, right? So he, he follows his his boundary, his pen-drawn boundaries, hand-drawn, like not with you know without the glasses from the kitchen or whatever he was using, right? Um, his hand-drawn boundaries follow exactly the edge of the circle, the edge of the outermost circle along the north and south. But when he gets towards the east and west axis, he brings them out. He fattens them out. So that they come not to a point, they're still rounded, but they're fatter on that side, whereas they're right on the circle at the north and the south. What's he depicting there? What's he showing? What, Again, think of the stories now. What's in the... Uh, what's the phrase that he used? The West and East Poles, or the uttermost North and South? Um, well, remember mythologically the gates of morning and the gates of night. Um, when you get to the edge of the world in those directions, right, there's, there's, there, there's, there's doors, there's gates, Right, and no, seems to try to go over to the eastern ones. That's they don't fan, they don't figure in the stories, right? But of course, there's a lot of action on the western edge of things, right? Um, now, I don't know how the Elvish theory picture of a rift of a chasm. It was a. It was a. It was a. A, a, chasm, a channel. That was the word. Channel. Um, does that mean a chasm, or does it just mean like a very deep bit of ocean? It can't just mean a very deep bit of ocean, as presumably you could sail across a very deep bit of ocean as easily as the rest of the ocean. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the original... Because this was before, remember, they met the Valar, i.e., before they went into the West, right? Um, But think of how this mythologically maps onto the story of the Silmarillion, right? What happens after the Darkening of Valinor? Right? The raising up of the Pylori. There is a boundary, an uncrossable boundary, that's established there. Um so there's there's an irony isn't there to the elves picture of the world on the one hand it's um it's actually wrong it's actually wrong that is to say um there wasn't uh you could just sail over to Amman. at the time that they made that picture it was incorrect but it was like prophetic in fact <laughs> right um that's uh that's kind of fascinating actually that's kind of fascinating um, all right uh and by the way, I think the reason that he's put these little dots and blobs that suggest quivien and and Otumno um, uh, or something is to give a sense of uh like this scale of the world like what's what's going on in the world like, you know where, uh, where the theater of action of the stories is right um and these all are northern hemisphere stories, right? Um, though Quivianen is fairly far down, it's not very northern. Um, and uh, but of course, this still maps onto the globe as we know it in the Lord of the Rings, right? In Harad, the stars are strange, right? So presumably, when you go down into Harad, you you cross over the equator and you get um, you get down into the into the southern realms, of which there is presumably quite a lot. Um According to this map, um, yeah, okay, all right, sorry, excuse me, so um, let's keep going. Um, I don't have too much more to say about the map or the picture. Um, we didn't get all that much about it. um, I would have loved to read more about that, um but what to me, what was most interesting? In that is the whole the concept of mytho astronomy right and thinking about the ways in which the elves were bringing together the scientific and the poetical imaginations and I think that that's a really fascinating thing uh, for Tolkien yeah. um, okay uh, more about the tale of Arda the prime impulse of which this is this is chapter two now um, The prime impulse of which the total unfolding is the great pattern, Erkantie, having continuous life. This life will not be coextensive with the tale of Arda, for as Arda began with the Erma, prime substance, and then the Nasi materials, remember we've talked about that, before the entry of the living things, so doubtless the great pattern will end sooner, leaving the Nasi, and they will be reduced to the Erma until the tale ends As it began. So if you graph the tale of Arda, the great pattern of the world, what does it look like? Well, it's sort of narrow at the beginning because there's no life, there's just stuff, and then it starts to diversify and get more complicated when the Erma is divided up into the different Nasi, the different materials, and then You get the Valar who start making things, living things and growing things out of those materials. And so it grows big, right? And then you've got the story of all the living things, but then things start to die off, right? And it starts to contract again until then you're just back down to Nasi and then you're down to Erma again. So what's what's the shape of it? Actually, it's kind of exactly like the shape of the world as they've shown it. See how the mytho-astronomical mytho-astron- uh, imagination of the elves, I mean, see, it works on multiple levels. This is why you have to study the humanities. I'm just saying. Okay, anyway. Uh, so, you can't just do science. You have, to, you have to combine the scientific and the poetic impulses. Um, then you'll be as smart as the elves. Okay. Um, so, they believed that the tale of Arda was going to end with things winding down, back down to, to, to disorder, to simple Erma again. The end of life and the winding down to Erma. Yet while it continues, the arcantier is unbroken and unceasing. The arcantier, the great pattern, right? Many points of its growth may cease and proceed no further. This is when a living thing perishes before it has produced any offspring or successor. But the whole will not cease until such time as all living things then surviving shall no longer produce living offspring. The great pattern, right? We're talking big picture here, right? Living creatures come and go. Um, entire, like, species come and go, right? Um, uh, they do go, right? A species ends when... A living thing perishes before it has produced any offspring or successor. Um, But the whole story of Arda, the whole tale of Arda isn't going to cease until there are no more living creatures anymore and we've lapsed back to Erma at the end. This might happen by catastrophe in which all living things perished, or by the cessation of the impulse to generate as the great pattern worked at last towards its completion. That may be, I mean, that's the way it's designed, right? It's the way it's designed. Um, So it's not necessarily an evil in that sense, right? But since the pattern of any one living thing is not held to have ended until the embodiment is destroyed or dissolved, the great pattern could not strictly be said to have ended while still any living thing lived and endured, even if it did not generate. Right, so it's not like okay when the, when when the last child has been born, like the last uh, the last offspring has been born, then the story's over. Right now, now as long as anybody's still hanging on, right, the story is still going on. On the other hand, the elves are said to be immortal within Arda, which should mean, as it is understood, that they will endure to the utter end of Arda. Thus, it may be that men and all other races of living things will perish and fail to generate, whereas. As seems likely, since the process may be seen in operation, the elves will long before the end have ceased to generate, and their bodies will have been consumed by their Faar. So what's gonna what's the end of Arda gonna look like? The end of Arda is going to look like all of the story of all living things winding down to an end and then the time will come when all living things will die and Dissolve, you know, decompose into their component parts, which will then themselves break down into mere matter at the end. And where will the elves be? Right there. Right there, witnessing the whole thing. Their bodies having been consumed by their are right? So that spirits of the elves will remain watching this whole process. Humans will be done. Right? Humans will be done because they're some of those living creatures. Right, who have stopped having babies. And every last human will have by this time shuffled off this mortal coil. Right? Um, but those not unembodied elves, those elves whose fare have consumed their Ho'ar, those invisible elves, will still remain. Okay? Um, by the way, think back to the Athrobeth and Finrod's conversation with Andreth, where Andreth is like, what do you elves understand about death, right? Uh, You know, and and like you just... You know, she has this idea of like the elves just looking forward to never ending life, which sounds like a really sweet gig, right? Um, And Finrod is like, actually not so much, right? Like if you really... Understand about the tale of Arda, and so here we're working that out, right? What does that end look like? Why is it exactly that the elves, and even the Valar themselves, may one day envy the mortality of humans? May envy the gift of Iluvatar? Well, um, that last bit of the tale of Arda sounds kind of boring, not to mention a little depressing, right? And so, that, but the Valar and the elves—they're—they're—they're they're, they're in for the. They're along for the ride, the whole ride. Um, and uh, But the humans, they're doing their thing already, whatever it is, their thing, whatever their thing is. They don't have to watch this happen. They don't have to watch the decomposition of Arda, essentially. Okay, so n- now he's talking about this is where... So this is the section now where he's we're basically doing the like uh, elvish Darwinian theories right the 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 evolution the evolution theories of the elves um, so again we're talking about the, that great pattern how life comes about where where does life come from um, and by the way let me address it first the question which may have been in many of your minds I know it was in mine for a while why are we talking about this like why what gives with this? Um, I, I did. I, I had a moment where I was reading this, and I'm like, "Hang on, why do I care?" Please explain to me why I care. And but I think I see in the end why we should care about this. And my answer to that is: I think what's really at issue here is this is Tolkien working out the frontiers of the power of the Valar. That is, what do they do, and what does Iluvatar do, right? Um, Another way of thinking about this is, you will recall, the orc problem was created by the firm decision Tolkien holding the line on the theological point that evil cannot create. It can't create new things of its own. But what about the Valar, right? Okay, it's actually not just that evil can't create new things. No created... Beings can actually create new things. The Valar are themselves sub-creators. So, what does that mean? How does that work? Um, the mythology that the old mythology had the Valar making the world, right? The Valar were making the world. They made all the animals. They made all the plants, right? They made all the. They made everything, right? They, you know, they that the world was their project, right? under Iluvatar's guidance and by Iluvatar's inspiration, sure. Um, and the reality of it, you know, the the, the, the bringing of it to be, uh, right, the making of it into Ea, that is the world that is, um, was done through, you know, the Imperishable Flame, right, uh, uh, and Iluvatar. And yet, right, it was all of this stuff came from... So he's he seems to be kind of probing, right, again, where where exactly do the boundaries lie what parts of creation are they are the valar subcreators and if they are subcreators what is Iluvatar's role in the making of the world right and that i believe is that's the frontier that he is feeling out in this whole section as he's explaining life and how life happens because that's the real question right um uh, to uh, to put this another way uh of course another place another story in which we see him uh exploring the idea of um the limitations on the creative power of the valar we've got we've got it with the, with the orcs obviously as we've discussed many times but of course the the outlay story with the creation of the dwarves which is quite a late story um you know which comes from this whole time as well um there we see him also exploring this thing right okay so so aule does not have the power to invest them with souls. Fear are only come straight from a right? They can make bodies, the 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 Valar can make bodies, but they can't make spirits. They can't make Fear. Fine. So what about uh what about animals? What about like deer and dogs and stuff? Right? Um Valar could do that, but hang on. Um the dwarves when Ale made them first could do nothing of their own volition at all like they you know when when they were just constructs right um Ale could make them and he could make them do stuff when he was focusing on them right but as soon as he turned his attention uh, attention away from them we're told they'd like all sag down and they did, they were just like puppets right but animals aren't like that not only are animals not like puppets i mean yavana is not like moving all of the animals and, you know, like, all the rodents and bugs and everything around, like, pieces on a chessboard, right? And if she didn't concentrate on them, they'd freeze in place. That's not how animals are. And what's more, they, um, they reproduce. The animals do, right? That seems kind of a big deal. Um, does Yovana give them that power? Does that, and if so, would that contradict the outlay story, right? Um, And and, and what about plants, right? Plants might, you know, kind of seem... You know, they're further away from elves and and, and humans and dwarves, but still, they do stuff, they grow, and they reproduce, too, right? So, again, does that power of reproduction, that power of growth, that power of life, come from the Valar? Um, So... Again, th- th- this, is, this is the frontier that he's sort of feeling around. And if we go back for a second to the previous slide, um, the prime impulse of which the total unfolding is the great pattern, having continuous life. Life itself is part of the great pattern. Um, it's part of the tale of Arda. So he seems already to be suggesting that this impulse of life, of life and growth, Those are things from Iluvatar, not from the Valar. Um, Okay, so now, back to this diversity of life passage. But others hold, and their view seems to observe more clearly what is known by lore and experience of history. Um, You'll notice, by the way, throughout this whole section, we're not doing mytho-astronomy anymore. We're doing mytho-biology, right? Um that are like mythozoology, even in places. Um, We have careful observation of living creatures, right? Both individual creatures as they uh, are born, grow and die and whole species of creatures, right? Here are the elves looking at the world around them, noticing things, observing things and wanting to understand them, wanting to classify them together, right? Um, And we've already talked about some of this a little bit, right? Like you've got, look, There's a tree. Oh, it's so beautiful. Look at all the things about this tree. Look, there's another tree over there and it's like this tree, but it's different, right? You know, like that one has like dark bark and this one has white bark and this leaves are shaped like this and these leaves are shaped like that, but they're both trees. How fascinating. Oh, look, there's another tree over there, which is quite like that first one has the same shape of leaves and the the same color bark, but its shape is quite different than the shape of that other one, right? Huh, right, so these are the observations, right, that the elves are, the kinds of observations that the elves are making. Anyway, I'm gonna actually finish the sentence now. But others hold, and their view seems to observe more closely what is known by lore and experience of history, that this is not a true account of the beginning or ending of life in Arda. They maintain that Ermenia does not belong to Ea, and therefore not to Arda. It must be referred to the uttermost beginning, the th- that it, life, that is. Life doesn't belong to Ea. It must be referred to the uttermost beginning, the theme of Eru, as he first propounded it before the Ainuindole, in which the spirits whom he had made and instructed cooperated in the elaboration and working out of the theme. Iluvatar propounds a theme, and then it is elaborated and worked out by his creatures, the Ainur. Right? Life. The idea of life is part of Eru's original theme, and then it's elaborated and worked out by the Valar. So you you see how we're exploring the frontier of like who does what job, right? Um, Life is a gift from Iluvatar, but it is shaped um, and elaborated by the Valar. Thus the Ermeniae, which is a device of Eru, being before the Ainulindale is also before Ea, the realization. Ea is the realization, of course, of the theme. It's the world that is. For it is clear in such lore, as we have received from the Valar, we elves, obviously, that they set in motion the unfolding of different living patterns at many different points in the Ainulindale. The Valar did. Many different living patterns at many different points in the Ainulindale, And therefore, this was repeated in Ea. Within Ea, we have then not one single Ermenier or great pattern, but a number of early or major patterns, Ercantie. Okay, so there's not just one great pattern of life, right? There's a bunch of major patterns. Right, the sort of sub themes that were elaborated by the Valar themselves. Let's Let's keep going. For it seems clear in such lore as we have received from the Valar that they started the unfolding of living patterns at many different points in the music, and so also in Ea. Only so can we understand the power which the Valar certainly have, and certainly exercised in days of old, of making things with life corporeal, as if one should set many springs flowing in different places. So again, there's no question the Valar legitimately made things which grow and reproduce and become species, right? They totally did that, right? But that's not them inventing a thing. That's them doing making a a what is he called a major pattern, right? An arcantier. It's a a movement, right? It's still it's it all derives from the theme that Eru himself, it has its source in Eru, right? Um if uh, if they are setting many springs flowing in different places. Eru is the source of those springs, right? There wouldn't be any water flowing out at all if Eru hadn't put it there, but he does enable them to choose where shall these springs, right? These springs of life uh, come flowing out. What direction? will they go, what will it look like, right? Um, Those are the things they can choose. These would not be related in history nor proceed from one fount. They would be akin or alike only through the nature of water. And because each stream would perforce obey the laws of the coherence of Ea, that are alike for all things, though directing them variously according to the situation of each. So again, they can't make things that operate by fundamentally different laws. Right. I mean, like the laws of what we in the modern world are prone to call the laws of nature. Right. Um, Or to think of as the laws of nature. Um, Those are those are the framework of the world that Eru has made. Right. And those things can't be altered. Um, So, uh, you know, like if you if you want a creature that's going to like have limbs and move around, you're really going to need a spine like that's probably you know i mean you can do it without a spine under certain other circumstances but but again like gravity's a fact right so if you want to locomote you know there there only there's a there's a limited number of mechanisms by which they can do that right so they have freedom to make they can make you know they can make deer and make they can make slugs and they can make lobsters right um but um uh so they can make all of these different things but at the end of the day water is water right like it's only the 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 life that comes only comes from one place and it obeys the laws of the co- the coherence of a right and those laws are not different for the different creatures um though the valar can direct them variously according to the situation of each that is gravity is the same for the different species right but the giraffe and the lobster deal with uh gravity differently because of their different uh, circumstances, right? The different situation of each, right? As, for instance, all streams would flow downwards, right? He uses gravity as an illustration here. All streams would flow downwards unless hindered, and wind swifter or slower according, and wind swifter or slower according to the figure of the land, right? That's, that law is true everywhere, but of course some of the springs, right? Using the spring metaphor, some of those springs are going to create waterfalls, And some of them are going to create slowly meandering rivers, right? Um, Operating by the same laws, but they're in different situations. So again, like your giraffe and your lobster are the same spring, but different situations. Thus, we may observe the great complexity of corporeal life in Arda. Derived ultimately from the Hermenier, the great pattern right, this whole, the larger theme of Eru, we have the devices or designs of the Valar separate, each in time of conception and first effecting, whether coming successively from one of the Valar or coming from more than one. These are the major patterns that we have spoken of. So, some, uh, sometimes you get patterns, these major patterns, which will be collaborations between Valar like, I suspect, birds, based on the evidence, both direct and indirect, to be a collaborative project of Manway and Yavanna, right? For instance. Um, but uh, anyway, OK. So we can see how this leads to the great complexity of corporeal life in Arda. That makes sense. Their number none but the Valar can know. This is the uh, different uh, kinds of things. These are not rightly called akin unless by later mingling. So, you know, two species which... Two different kinds of creature which are very like each other. Are not rightly called akin unless by later mingling, for they are related only as proceeding from the same mind as of one vala, or from like minds as of more than one of these. And their differences are given, not developed within... Are given, not developed within and by the operation of Arda. So... What does he mean? The differences are given, not developed within and by the operation of Arda. What is it? What is he? So he's saying, look, there are some things. There's a lot of diversity out there. Right. But let's take a couple examples. Let's look on the one hand at lobsters and then let's leave giraffes and and do horses. We've got lobsters and we've got horses. Right. Um, Are these uh, akin to each other according to the elves not really not really um they only consider things akin if as if, if they're like proceeding as from the same mind or from like minds working together right um uh whereas because like what what makes lobsters and and horses different is it just um, um are they just developed within and by the operation of arda the elves seem to say no to that question. No common ancestor there, they say, right? But then you look at other things. The difference between horses and zebras, for instance, which seems like it may very well be a difference, which does not seem to suggest two radically different minds, right? Both of which were kind of into the horse concept, but one was slightly, you know, less restrained, <laughs> right? Um... That they, Those are not diff, two different major patterns. Those seem like they proceed from the same mind, right? You look at a horse, you look at a zebra, and you say, no, I think the same mind designed those two things, right? But there are differences, presumably differences that have somehow developed within the operation of Arda, or been compelled by the operation of Arda, right? Or again, to take an even simpler Example, um, uh, if you to take an even simpler example, you take two oak trees, right, and the two oak trees look very different from each other. Why? Because they have developed within and by the operation of arda differently. Different circumstances, different sustenance, different winds and 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 soil and everything and 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 other circumstances. So they end up growing and looking completely different from each other, except the fact that they have the same shape of leaf. And, and again, you look at those two things and you say, were these, did these proceed from the same mind? Yeah, probably. Right. Even potentially the elm tree and the oak tree, did they proceed from the same mind? Yeah, maybe, maybe they did. Right. This is the elvish mythopoetic view of the the origin of species. Right, of the relation of species. They break these things down into these major patterns. Right. Um, Okay, but these major patterns, Arcantiae, developing in Arda will diverge, whether by the design of their beginners or by the varieties caused by the stuff of Arda which they must use into different but similar groups of descendants. So it's possible that the elm tree and the oak tree originally did have a common ancestor, like tree. Right. Maybe all trees were kind of the same when Yavanna first made them. Right. And she's like, I'm going to make trees. And she just made yield tree. Right. But then over time, trees diversified because of the diverse circumstances of Arda. And so now we have oak trees and elm trees and birch trees and all kinds of different things. Right. Um, These and 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 Yavanna might not have foreseen that. Right? She didn't necessarily plan that. That was just kind of how it worked out. She planned trees and then, whoa, look at that. All kinds of varieties of trees, right? Um, remember the discovery, uh, the conversation with Olmo and Iluvatar in the Ainu right? How he's like, I never even imagined the snowflake or the fall of rain, right? Um, the Valor gets surprised a lot. They understand their bit. Omo understands water, but there was a lot he did not foresee about how water would happen, right? What would happen to and with and through water um, in AI as it actually occurs. And the same is true of all of these varieties of stuff that, um, um, that it, um, the, the varieties of stuff that end up getting created, right, that end up emerging. These are truly akin, that is, things which come from a, a common origin, were, the ori- were originated by one mind, but ended up diversifying because of the circumstances within Arda. These are truly akin, and members of races or tribes or families or houses, they thought of them, they associated them together. Right? And we know like four different uh, metaphors right, to talk about those. At last, and in our time, it is beyond the skill of any but the Valar to distinguish the likenesses due to the likeness of the minds of the Valar from those, from those due to descent in Arda. At this point, there's been so much diversity we can't even really tell, right? I mean, you, you look at, like, the oak tree and, um, you know, I don't know, like a spruce bush, right? And say, like, man, those things are so different. Maybe two different Valar did think of those. Right. maybe they don't have a common ancestor well how can you tell right um, it is beyond the skill of any but the Valar these days to even tell because sometimes things, might, things have diversified so much that you might not be able to tell um, who knows maybe the lobster and the horse did have a common ancestor after all right? um, and we just can't see it anymore okay another point. Beyond this we have over, ever, over all Eru. That he introduced new things into the music. Not in the theme. That's not, not counting the original theme. He introduced that. Right? But he also later on puts his spoke in. Right? And introduces extra stuff. We are told. For thus began the conception of elves and men. The children of Lutar, are new things introduced into the music that were not even in the original theme. Parenthesis. The dwarves are a case rather of the separate beginnings by the Valar, though unless Eru tolerated and blessed it. though something The word unless is, is unclear. Though something Eru tolerated and blessed it. Um, yeah, so, you know, footnote on the uh, exception that dwarves are. That he has never done so in other cases of corporeal life or of incarnate, or that he never will do so again, none can say. Okay, so the dwarves you know, were adopted, right? They were not part of uh, what they were not one of Iluvatar's introductions into the themes, um, but he adopted them into the theme. He, he, he naturalized them in the theme, right? Uh, You know, in the music. Has he ever done that again? Did he do that with anybody else? We know the dwarf story, but was there a different story of like somebody made did like, uh, was like the platypus adopted into the animal family, right? Because somebody made the platypus because they thought that was a good idea. They're like, hey, what if we combine like all these different things together into one really freakish-looking animal? And Yavanna was like, oh man, I can't even with that, right? And uh, poor Yavanna. Uh I'm imagining all these things on Yvanna. And then Eru's like, no, I shall. The platypus shall be the step, you know, the stepchild of the of the beast. Who knows, right? Maybe he did. Maybe he did. Maybe he it was probably Tolkis, autoflagellator, you think? Uh, It was probably Tolkis who took it upon himself. to. I'm contributing. Um, uh, Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, But um, uh, but anyway, um, maybe maybe he maybe he'll do it again in the future. You know, make an exception like this. The Valar report no such, maybe intrusive, things in the music other than the coming of the children. But since Eru was not bound by the theme, nor by the Ainu Indole, as made by the Ainur, it w- that, you know, he doesn't have to stick to it. He can do new stuff all the time that they didn't sing about, right? As his prerogative. It would be rash to assert that he is or will be bound by Ea realized since he is outside Ea, but holds the whole of Ea in thought by which it coheres. Some of those things that appear suddenly in history and maybe continue then in obedience to Ea or soon cease to be maybe seen may indeed be due directly to Eru. These things are called the signs of the finger of Eru. In other words, Eru can still work miracles. Things suddenly happen in history and continue then in obedience to Ea. Right. What does that mean? Let me choose a random example. Um, If you, if somebody, under some circumstances which are hard to imagine, turned water into wine, right, the wine thus miraculously brought about, would operate on your body like any other wine would do. You you could get drunk on it, right, Um, and you'll have to pee later. It, it will continue in obedience to Ea, to the way Ea operates, right? Even if it's something that appeared suddenly in history, like sudden vats of really good wine that were not there before. Um, that's an example, potential random example, um, of a uh, a sign of the finger of Eru, Right. A miracle that he performs, um, that he can do this. the elves make clear that they acknowledge that miracles are always possible, um, and don't they're no violation. Like, the music is not as fate to all things, because Eru can monkey with it anytime he wants to, right? Um, he's outside EA, but he holds the whole of EA in thought. Oh, and P.S., it only coheres together at all because he is holding it in thought, right? So, yeah, yeah, he can mess with it, and it's no big deal. Um, okay, the conclusion. But Eru, even in, intr- in intruding the children, in intruding, sorry, but Eru, even in intruding the children, took as their shape a form that, though altered and refined, resembles, in less or even in great degree, the forms of beasts. The children are not akin by descent with the beasts, therefore, but are related closely in the thought of Eru to them. And with the beasts, the children have, have ever felt kinship, even akin. So, the children of Iluvatar have always felt they're not actually related to animals, but they feel like they are, and they even look like they are. They, like, man, the bodies of humans and elves and animals, real similar in lots of ways, right? And they feel like they're cousins, right? They feel You feel fellow-feeling for animals and, to a lesser extent, plants, right? But um, but they're not actually akin, right? They were intruded into—they come from Eru right? But nevertheless, that feeling of kinship, it's not wrong. There is a sense in which the children are not at all akin by descent from beasts, but there's also a sense in which they are akin to beasts, metaphorically, because they're related closely in the thought of Eru to them. Eru was thinking about the animals, right? He made the, the bodies of uh, humans like to the bodies of beasts on purpose. Um, the fair of the elves and men and dwarves via Aule, Ents via Yavanna were intrusions into Ea from outside as the Valar were sent into Ea the fair of the elves and men and dwarves and Ents were intrusions into Ea from outside so this just in plain confirmation Ents have fair s are also stepchildren of Iluvatar, right? Ents and dwarves get souls, they get fair, which are the gift of Iluvatar, just like the souls of humans and elves, right? Um, all four races are intrusions into EA from outside, even though Ivana and Alay are responsible for the ants and dwarves, nevertheless, they would none of them have souls would none of them be actual children? Um, if not for the fact that Eru decides to intrude Fe'ar into them. Right? And then he establishes the, paro- the parallel between the Fe'ar of the incarnate races, the four incarnate races, and the Valar entering into air. Remember how he was saying that the Valar are like the the Valar are like the Fea of the Earth, of the world, of Arda itself, right? Um, The Fea to the Hroa is as the Valar to the um, uh, to the to to Arda, right? Um, We can see that parallel here again. Okay. all right, Devora, the fact that You'll notice hobbits are not here, right? As Devorah says, is he going to fit hobbits in there, or are we meant to understand that they're a subset of men? I think everywhere they're a subset of men. Um, there's no reason to even ask the question: Why does the Silmarillion not talk about hobbits when it's talking about these things, right? Um, why does the Silmarillion not fit them in? And of course, retroactively, Tolkien had to say, "Wow, well, it's for the elves." Just seem to. Quite ignore hobbits, right? And hobbits feel ill done by that they never get included in the old stories. Um, but even here, he's including the dwarves and the ants. Ents are a later invention for Tolkien than hobbits are, right? So, Devorah, you're right that this is very conspicuous. Um, if he's going to include ants, but not include hobbits. There has to be a reason for that. And the reason is obviously not because hobbits don't have souls, right? Um, uh, We know they have souls. Leathery ones. Just kidding. Couldn't resist the dad joke. Anyway, um, but he doesn't include hobbits here. And I think it's it's perfectly plain that they're related to men, right? Um, uh, Everywhere that hobbits are just hobbits and hobbits. I mean, think about how, uh, Dvor. one of the places we can kind of anchor this, I think, think of the times he has used the example of what happens to Frodo um, in Toleresia as an illustration of what happens to human souls versus what happens to elf souls, right? Remember that came up in the, quest, in the, in the context of mortals versus immortals, right? And Frodo is used as an example. Of mortals, he's a representative, not of hobbits, but of humans, of of mortals, completely. Right, so I think it's it's very clear that metaphysically speaking, hobbits are a subset of men. Now, how did? Let's go back to the uh, origin of species stuff. Are hobbits truly akin to humans? Um, Are they? proceeding from the same mind or from like minds or are they two totally different species which have just kind of become more alike as time has gone on no I I think the former right and I think that the big folk and the little folk the stature of the hobbits which is the primary um, difference between humans and hobbits not the only but the primary difference their stature is clearly an example of the diversification, the, div- the divergence, the varieties caused by the stuff of Arda, which they must use, right? Which the Valar must use. I think that's clearly how hobbits came around. They're an example of the diversification of species, the human species, to be precise. Um, and I think, Carrie, the woes as well, also a diversification of the human species, not a separate species. Um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Stephen says, so in a sense, Bob is a man, regardless of how tall he is. Don't think you're going to win the argument that way, Stephen. No. I mean, yes, but no. It doesn't make him not a hobbit. Uh, anyway, sorry. Stephen and I continuing an argument we've been having for a few years. Um, Okay, okay um, so excellent question devorah. I think that that's clearly um, uh, that's clearly a, um, an example of this kind of uh, this kind of diversification okay one or two more quickly because again, just kind of following up on some of these ideas. this is the next chapter, um, but he's still thinking about the Um, The the Valar here. The idea of life and growth came from Eru, but the Valar, under him, devised the shapes and forms of living things. When Eru gave being to this design, right, that transition from the music to Ea, in general and in particular, that is both when he said, I'm I'm inventing history, right, and history is playing out now, moment by moment and uh, creature by creature. Uh, in general in particular, and it became Ea, unfolding in time, he set in motion life and growth, or those processes which would in time lead to this. Okay, so he set in motion, the like, by creating the stuff and establishing the rules, right, by fine-tuning Ea in order to create life, to facilitate the the, the eventual generation of life, Eru is the source of all living things, right? So meanwhile, what are, the Valar, what are the Valar doing? But when he permitted the Valar to descend into time to carry out in Ea, or reality, the things that they had designed and thought, then viewed in time, they appeared to make things which were alive. So there, look, there's Yavanna making trees. Right? There she is. Right? And so there, it looks like she's made this living species. Except she hasn't exactly. She's formed it. She shaped it. She thought it. She thought this particular major pattern, right? Within the larger pattern, but the whole concept of living principles and how the world is designed to support life, that was all part of the raw material that she's working with in order to make trees, right? Indeed, it is held that being themselves in time, they experienced the making as a new thing. Differing in this experience, little save in degree of power and art, from the makers or artists among the incarnate. So when she made the trees, the first trees, Yavanna felt it was like an inspiration, right? She felt like a human artist who makes something and is like, oh man, that was awesome, right? Um, That sense you have when you're like, when you're a sub-creator and, and you've got it going on, right? And you're like, man, I just, I just made something right there. That is awesome. Have you ever had that feeling? If not, go make something. You should. Um, and that's what Yovana, y- Yovana felt that way, right? She was like, oh, man, trees. Genius. That was, that, that's great. I just made a new thing, right? Um, neither they nor the incarnate could make things utterly new. Right. neither the human artist nor Yavanna making a tree are actually making a completely new thing they're not she she didn't make a living she didn't create she subcreated they could not create after the manner of eru but could only make things out of what already existed the erma or its later variations and combinations the materials the substance erma it's it's there matter eru created matter she can't create matter, but she can shape it. She can form it after this idea that came out of her own head, right? The, the tree idea, totally Ivana right? She was the one who thought of living creatures that would look like that, which is kind of weird if you don't take it for granted, right? The whole tree idea, right? That's ivana right? That's ivana all over. But the matter of which it's made and the shape and form of living the idea of life and growth that's from arrow and the fact that this tree that she makes can in fact grow and have life and drop seeds and make new trees um that's that's all that's that's all down to arrow too right this—I I wanted to include this passage It's not saying anything new that we haven't already talked about, but I wanted to include this passage from Chapter 3 because it seemed like a, a slightly clearer and more direct um, statement of a lot of these things that we've been talking about, right? Really demonstrating what it means for the Valar themselves to be not creators, but sub-creators, right? Um... Okay, I'm going to save this one. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. We'll stop there. Um, I'm going to go... Where's my copy of the book? I'm going to go actually relatively quickly through some of the short chapters that are coming up. I'm not not going to talk about every single one. Um, There's some of the... I mean, it's not that I don't... Any of the chapters that I skip, it's not that I don't find them interesting. I'm just... um, uh, there's nothing I particularly want to stop and emphasize or kind of fit into the larger patterns that we've been seeing. Um, so let's, um, let's read ahead further. Let's go out to, let's go through chapter 11 for next time. How about that? Through chapter 11. Um, I think we can get there. All right. So we'll do through chapter 11. For next time, um, and I'll I'll start uh, I'll start with the with the Melkor business. So we'll have the one kind of transition from this um, uh, mytho scientific discussion we've been having here tonight, um, the Elvish concept of all this stuff, and then we'll transition to some of these rather eclectic ideas, um, the ways in which again we're seeing the implications of his world building right as he's making some decisions and how it how they fit into his stories all right thanks everybody uh fun discussion tonight and uh i look forward i'll be back next week um i'm going to be doing a bunch of moot travel but it's not not going to affect my wednesday nights so i should be uh uh marching here straight through uh for a few more weeks so um it's my goal by the way um i have my eye... if you're wondering like are we ever going to finish this book? Yes, we are. We're, we're, we're making serious progress now. And um, when might we start the next book, which you'll remember is Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. When are we going to start talking about that? Um, I have my eye on the beginning of May. I'm going to be away for another week, uh, another family trip. We're going to, to visit some family um, during my son's uh, spring break. So um, I'm going to be away that week. Um, but, um, my, uh, what I would love, that's like the very end of April, uh, basically end of April to beginning of May. I would like to start Alice after that. That's my, that's my goal. Maybe we'll even be before that, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, so that's kind of what I have in mind. If we're not there, I'm not going to force it, but, um, but that's kind of what I have in mind. So yeah, we're going to be doing Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass starting probably the beginning of May is what, I have, is, is, is what I'm eyeballing. So anyway, just wanted to let you know uh, what uh, may or may not be coming there. So thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys soon. Bye now.